Welcome to Bloom Together, the podcast where we cultivate education leadership, innovation, and impact, one conversation at a time. Join us as we learn from visionary leaders, share inspiring stories, and uncover strategies that drive meaningful change in K-12 education. Greetings and good day, podcast listeners. This is Mike Caldwell once again, and you are listening to Bloom Together. And today we are in Boise, Idaho at Boise State University. And joining me today is Megan Smith, Associate Professor in the School of Public and Population Health. So, Megan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. Thanks for being part of this podcast. Share a little bit about your background. Introduce yourself. I know a lot of people maybe listening might know you already, but give us a little bit of your background. I am a mom and I am also a faculty member here at Boise State. I am a teacher and also a researcher. I think my primary identity professionally is as a teacher. Uh, I've been teaching pretty much my entire adult life in one way or another, whether it be, you know, in high school, I helped, you know, at summer camps for no reason at all, (laughs) other than I just like being around kids. And then I became a teacher right after grad school and did that for several years at a K-12 in a tiny rural mountain town called Quincy, if anyone knows it, and taught middle school math not, and science. Not in Idaho. When Correct. you first said Quincy, mountain town, I was just like, ah, I know Idaho really well. I don't know that name. But, oh, yes. But, yeah. Sorry. Yes, not in Idaho. California. And- we won't hold that against her, though. <laughs> I was going to say, I always try to sidestep that. It doesn't define me. But yeah, I worked at that small school as a 7th through 12th teacher, teaching math and science to middle school students, and then in a five-minute passing period, transitioned to high school students. So I always tell people for the visual, you know, it was from like, hi, Miss Smith, to like, hey, Miss Smith, in five minutes. And just a really awesome career. I loved teaching. When I met my husband, we ended up moving across the country to West Virginia, And at that time, I had enough teaching under my belt that I sort of really knew what I wanted to study, which was how do we make schools the best possible places they can be for kids? And that's what I went into uh, my Ph.D., laser focused on and and did all of my research around adolescent health, adolescent development, and then those environmental factors is what we would call it, which is basically what's going on in the community or in the school that impacts young people. Yeah. Awesome. Good background. And we have kind of similar ties with the smaller school. I, I, I was mentioning yesterday, my first teaching job was in Garden Valley School District here in, in Idaho. And similar, I was a math teacher and started the beginning of the day with, I think it was pre-algebra, ended the day with calculus. So oh, wow. every <laughs> period was a different class. And in fact, two of the six or seven classes that I taught were actually split. So I remember in one class period, having half algebra one students and half algebra two students in the same wow. period. Yeah. And, but in a small school, that's kind of what you did. It is and, what it is. And yeah. luckily that was my first teaching job. So, and I didn't know any better. So I just thought that's how it was. So, but boy, in, a, in those small school districts, it's challenging. You yeah. learn a lot and you're, you're asked, there, there's a lot of asked of you. So Certainly. I can, I can relate. And you're not too far away from teaching at this moment either. You're still teaching, but you're teaching. 
Yeah. Big kids now. Yeah, I teach real big kids. Some of my students are older than me now, which is an awesome experience. But yeah, I teach at the undergraduate level. I teach things like research methods and collaborating for change. And at the graduate level, I teach our adolescent health and development course. I teach applied statistics, so I still get to teach math a little bit, which is fun. And I teach our community engagement courses. So how do we get our folks really understanding the best ways to engage with the community and include them in the work? Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Well, I heard your name. I, we hadn't met until recently, but I heard your name, you know, from several different people as I was kind of going out and having more conversations about what is happening in, in our state as it relates to supporting youth in their mental health in our schools which is our focus for this podcast series. And I heard your name come up, you know, several <laughs> times and was able to connect with you and learn a little bit about the work that you're doing, which is really important work. So let's go to that. Tell our listeners and let's talk a little bit about the work you're currently doing with schools in Idaho. Sure. So about three years ago, I started, I guess we would call it an initiative, which is called Communities for Youth. And the idea is to work on what we call upstream prevention for young people around youth mental health. So I'm going to pause just yeah, go ahead. I know so much. No, jargon. <laughs> no, I love it, though, because th those terms I've been in education forever, but those terms of upstream and downstream make sense to me. But they were also somewhat, you know, new to me recently and sure, thinking sure. about that. So break that down a little bit. When we talk about upstream support versus downstream support, what are we talking about there? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. When we think of downstream, what I mean is something that might help after a crisis. So in the case of youth mental health, a young person who begins to really struggle with their mental health, we might find a counselor or a crisis center. That would be a downstream sort of approach. A crisis center can also be sort of a prevention approach because obviously it prevents the worst case scenario, which is a young person taking their life due to mental health challenges. When we talk about upstream, and I work really upstream, so we'll talk about it a lot over the course of this time, but when we talk about upstream, we're talking about the what we call risk and protective factors. And so risk factors are the types of things that may lead to mental health challenge. So things like experiencing family violence is a risk factor. Things like attending a school that doesn't feel like it cares about you or your education is a risk factor, right? And we also, good news is, we also have protective factors, right? So most people are familiar with the idea that one trusted adult can be extremely protective. And what that means is when we look at kids who have a trusted adult versus not a trusted adult, and kind of most of the other things are similar, the kid with the trusted adult ends up with less mental health challenge. And so when we talk about upstream prevention, we're talking about what are the things in those risk and protective factors at the community level that are impacting youth mental health? Yep, great, yeah. And in a recent podcast, we talked about, you know, things like uh, PBIS and MTSS, and oftentimes we referred to kind of the three tiers, which are very common in Idaho and thinking about response to intervention and kind of level one, level two, and level three. And there's a parallel there as well with upstream versus downstream and yeah. kind of thinking about that first level, first tier of support kind of for everyone and thinking about what what can we do more upstream to to do more of the preventive that's going right. to impact everyone. And then as 
challenges arise for individual students, kind of the the level of support kind of is more targeted to those. Is that kind of Yeah, I actually appreciate you drawing that connection. You're bringing me back to my education research days. Yes. So it's, it's a lot like that tier one where we're trying to make the whole community or the whole school environment good so that everyone's boat rises, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of derailed you <laughs> going back. Oh, yeah. You're doing a, doing a lot of work on the, on the more the upstream kind of focus. So yeah. 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 So stop me if I go too much into the weeds because I can be a, sort of a detail and I'll tell you all the parts, but you know, when I went to grad school in West Virginia, studying adolescent health and how to create great environments for them, as I described, I went to West Virginia, which is the what most people refer to as the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. So basically, opioid use is really high in many of the communities in West Virginia. And so I sort of had this moment where I was studying adolescent environments and how to make them great while also being in a place where there was a real fire around substance use. And by fortune or kismet or whatever you like to call it, I met a researcher who is currently working at West Virginia University on substance use prevention in schools and communities. And so that model is called the Icelandic Prevention Model. It's extremely successful in preventing substance use in young people. In Iceland, they've actually been using this model for over 20 years, and you can see just a consistent and precipitous drop in substance use in their youth. And over the last five years, it has just plateaued. So they started at 42% of young people using in their country, which was a a huge problem. <laughs> and it's now at 6% and sort of leveled off for many years, which means not only did it work to decrease use, but it's also holding it. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Right. And so as you know, like when we're studying these things, we know that substance use prevention is messy and hard and, and so is this other work. So I got really excited about the Icelandic prevention model and got to work on it in, in West Virginia. It's now being used in 43 different countries. So, you know, I've traveled to Mexico to help work in their government on using the Icelandic prevention model, et cetera. When I moved to Idaho five and a half years ago, I, you know, I know we talked, but I like to be really place-based. I like to be like in the community. I like to serve the community I live in professionally and personally. And then I also want to be near kids. <laughs> you know, I just want to be working with young people and helping make their experience great. And so I sort of took some time to to listen to lots of different folks. I worked with St. Luke's on a project they were doing with educational leaders throughout the state of Idaho. They were interested in making the relationships that they had with schools stronger and better. And so part of that project was asking, you know, school leaders at multiple levels, what do you need? What would you like from a community partner? And overwhelmingly, the response was, gosh, we need help with behavioral mental health. And I was seeing that way out in the data. You know, when you look at Idaho youth outcomes, the stuff that we do have, we can see that young people in our state struggle. And we struggle probably more than most of the states in the nation. Um, we often are leading in the top five to 10 for depression outcomes, for suicide ideation and completion. And so for me, it became really obvious that what I wanted to do and what I could do to help 
whatever, however you say it in the space, was to bring that experience of a prevention model that was successful with substance use to our communities in Idaho and apply it to youth mental health, which seemed to be a great problem and continues to be a great problem, unfortunately. Yeah. So you learned about the big problem and and got really involved and invested in it. And so now what? You're in five plus years. <laughs> what are you doing specifically with schools and which schools are you, you know, sure. you want to share a little yeah. bit about specifically what school districts you're working with and maybe some of the stuff you're doing? Sure. So first I'll say we haven't really been doing this work for five years because it took sure. me a while to identify where I could best fit in Idaho. And then I spent about a year, year and a half just trying to sit on every youth health coalition, every mental health coalition, every, you know, every iterative process, you know, anything I could publicly access. And I worked with State Department of Ed to pay attention to their boards at the time. It was under Ibarra and Studebaker and, you know, sat on a bunch of their programs and committees to just think about where where are we really? And so then, unfortunately, um, I mentioned that project with Luke's right after we did that project, we went into COVID. And so, you know, obviously that changed a lot of the dynamics. But... <laughs> silver lining if there is one. There was a grant opportunity and one of the goals of the grant specifically called out youth mental health. And I thought, here's our moment. We can do this. You know, we already have these these partnerships brewing. We we know what we want to do, which is get upstream prevention going for youth mental health. And so it was about three years ago that we started. We'll get into the weeds a little bit, but part of the Icelandic prevention approach is the the importance of using data and using data from the young people themselves in real time. And so a survey is is often the best approach. We also, in some school districts, use focus groups because they're not ready for a survey yet. But a survey is the best. And that is where we started. And we had a lot of schools sign up and say yes, but then the tumult of COVID-19 and all that we ended up narrowing down to only working with Marsing and Boise Unified, or sorry, I always say Boise Unified, Boise School District, that very first iteration. So we are in Marsing and Boise at many schools, not just in the district, but a couple of charters and a couple of private schools in, in the area of Boise as well. And then we also just started up in Blaine County in all of their schools We've also done work around focus groups and listening sessions in communities up in Coeur d'Alene, over in Twin, in Mountain Home, and we've met with Nampa folks and West Ada folks. And so I think the idea is to help people see that there is a way that we can all work on this. One of the things we heard in those listening sessions that we did the first year was parents are no matter, and I'm putting this in quotes, y'all. No matter what side you're on, you know, I believe deeply that parents and adults in the community, they don't want young people to be struggling. And so in some ways, that's really nice because it's a shared goal and it's a shared something to bring us together in a time where we might not 
feel like there's a lot to bring us together. That is a true deep goal for most people I talk to. And so, you know, those listening sessions were great because parents from all different, you know, backgrounds, et cetera, would say, yeah, we want to be doing something about this. Obviously, we don't want our kids to be struggling in any way, mental health or otherwise. But what am I supposed to do? I'm not a mental health care provider. And we hear the same thing from schools and school leaders, right? Like, obviously, this is a big deal. It impacts our academic mission. It impacts what we want to do with young people. It impacts how they can grow and what our community looks like, right? But a lot of school professionals are also like, but I'm not a mental health care provider. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do in this space? And so I think kind of the beauty of what we do and what we're slowly bringing you know, community by community, if you will. And man, there are a lot of communities here in Idaho. But is this sense that actually, if we all come together, we actually coordinate and it's a bit like a puzzle. Like we each have the right piece. We just need to do it together. Right now, we're all trying to do the puzzle by ourselves with one piece. Right. And you can't do it that way, no matter how hard you work, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we all have a, a role to play. And that's both at the school level, I think, you know, with parents and students themselves and the faculty and staff and community around that that school. But I, I apply that also kind of at the macro level, kind of statewide. Oftentimes we're all kind of doing these individual kind of things that, you know, but we need more cohesion and kind of our approach and, and, and how we how we can work together and as opposed to on these separate kind of some sometimes initiatives that don't always kind of work well together. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. You know, along those same lines I mentioned to you, you know, and it was interesting that to hear, you know, you that focus of mental and behavioral health was a clear priority when you first arrived. COVID hit. <laughs> and then really, I mean, in, in my observations as a, as a school principal at the time, it just accelerated those issues. You know, we spent a good year and a half, almost two years saying stay, you know, social isolation was the, was the name of the game. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what we were, we were, yeah. we were told to do. And we spent a lot of time doing that. And, uh, quickly for, for us as a school, you know, not surprisingly, we, we quickly saw how it was taking a toll on students' mental health. And in the spring of 21, for us, we spent a lot of time within the school figuring out how do we mitigate the, the impact and help students, you know, through this while we're trying to keep them healthy through the COVID pandemic, you know, also keep them healthy mentally through through this. And, and so a big focus for us also on the upstream focus was Let's make sure, you know, we zero in on the sense of belonging within our school, that every student feels like they belong. And a big push for us was kind of this this center around making sure everyone feels noticed, named, and known. That was kind mm -hmm. of our That's our really mantra, important. if you will, for the for the entire year and and then some. And and so we did our own kind of research as well in, in partnership with Springtide Research. And and data is really important, like you said. And for us, you know, we did our initial survey when we when we kind of pushed this initiative. You know, one of the questions, as an example, is adults acknowledge my presence at the school. And we want that to be, you know, 100% agree or strongly agree, right? And we had about 4% for that particular question at the beginning say, either disagree or strongly disagree. So 4% may be small, but that's 4%. Those are students right. that, that say that they don't feel adults acknowledge their presence. So, 
you know, and there's a long list of questions that we kind of asked in that kind of same vein, but it really helped us to kind of zero in on like, we need to make sure that as adults, we are getting out and, and noticing students, we know their names. So let's talk about strategies on how do we, how to remember all these students' names right, if, we yeah. know, if we don't have them in class, you know, and as an administrator, that's a, a challenge when you have almost a thousand <laughs> yep. students, but how do we do that? <laughs> but you, you know? can do it. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. And so then you put into in strategies, like how do you, how do you put those things in place and think things like working in the lunch line, you know, as kids come through and you're ringing them up for their lunch, you get to know those students' names. So it's little things that mm-hmm. you can do to know them by name and then notice them and mm-hmm. and then and then over time get to know them as a person. So yeah. So what did you learn? So you <laughs> you did you did the surveys and you started to gather data from from these different schools. So what have you learned? Um, if you could be the voice of the students that you're hearing from, what do you think they're saying through these surveys? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I wrote notes on so much of the the goodness that you said. So maybe we'll touch back on that. But as far as what we learned um, is that uh, in the, and I can only speak to sort of Boise area because some of the other areas are a little bit smaller, but I'll talk about themes. But in the Boise area, what we learned pretty obviously when we ran. So what we do is we we take the data and obviously we summarize it and we immediately bring it back to the school leaders and sort of say, hey, this is what we're seeing in the data. Do you have questions about this? Do you want us to go a little deeper? For instance, you mentioned you had that 4% who weren't feeling belonging or weren't feeling that people acknowledge them. And we can dig into that specific group and say, like, is there something different going on for these particular kids, which is a really cool in real time tool for educational leaders. But as far as what we learned from the survey, we saw really clearly that the two main drivers of both mental health challenge, so depressive symptoms is how we measure that, and ideation, so thinking about suicide, The two leading factors were social isolation, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means because I think in the scope of the pandemic, that can be misinterpreted. And then also stress, high levels of stress. So those were the two major factors. Now, there were several factors, but those were the ones that made up the most of the difference. And when we're talking- You said those two are social- Social isolation isolation and and high levels of stress. Stress. And so when we're talking about social isolation, I think some people think because of the pandemic and just other ideas about that, that we mean people like we immediately maybe get an idea in our head of like a loner in the school, someone who keeps to themselves, et cetera. But you can be the most quote unquote popular kid at school and feel social isolation because what this is about is not having genuine, deep, authentic, real relationships, right? So if we keep using our stereotypes, maybe like the quarterback of the football team, no one would consider him to be socially isolated. But because if he doesn't have real deep relationships where he can share himself, then he is socially isolated too. And so I like to say that because people will be like, oh, good, my kid's fine. Right. And what we found is actually high levels of kids were lacking real deep connection in their lives in in this area and that that was driving uh, mental health and ideation. 
And similarly, stress, right? And when I say that uh, in every community meeting, because again, we we don't collect this data for ourselves. It, it doesn't do me any good. What it does is it's it's allows me to use the tools and the skills that I have in communicating about and making sense of the data and sharing it back with the community. Because I don't know everything in a community, right? The school leaders know a lot more than I do about their school and about their kids as same with the parents. They know, so it's it's the coming together of us, right? Again, going back to the puzzle metaphor, like I have the like, here's what the data says and I can crunch it whatever way you like. But then there are parents who have the real, you know, on the ground information. And so when we talk about stress, you know, in community meetings, they're like, oh yeah, 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 stress is such a, you know, buzzword. Of course, stress is involved. What does that even mean, right? And I think what's cool about what we do is we don't stop at just like, okay, stress is driving it. What we did next, especially in Boise last year, is we talked to 66 kids after that in focus group settings and asked them, so, hey, it looks like stress is a big deal. What's stressing you out? And this is where, you know, you can tell, and uh, I wish people could see us right now because we're both smiling because we can tell we're getting closer to the kids, right? So, you know, one of the most amazing things is when you talk to young people, they're just so grateful to be listened to. So much of their life is them listening to advice or them listening to what they should be learning or doing. And one of the coolest things about a focus group is that my job is to just listen. Yes. And it's cool when you see kids about five minutes in, 10 minutes in, they're like, oh, this woman is really just listening. And then you can just see something click and they just, they just share. Yeah. You're getting me really excited because on Friday of this week, I have a podcast scheduled where I'm talking to students. Yay. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's my favorite of part things. of my yeah. job. Yeah. Um, we do all sorts of things, but really my favorite part is to talk to, to students because, again, they don't have all the answers, right? They're young, but they're in it. So they know what's true and real for them. And it's really cool. But anyway, I... I got tangential because I'm excited about talking to kids. But the point is that for most of the young people that we talked to here in this area around stress, it was what I call, not their words, I don't use their cool words, but what I call kind of this hustle or grind culture. So young people are watching the adults in their world work all the time, work to the wall. And also be economically stressed in most cases, right? So they're seeing this this sort of like, yes, you have to work hard and you have to have your phone in front of you all the time because what if work comes through? And also we're kind of struggling. And young people are seeing that in the other context of all these messages around make sure you get to the best college you can. And by the way, in order to get to the best college you can, you have to be excellent in all your classes. And also, you have to be excellent in extracurricular activities. And also, you have to be a good volunteer. And also, we want you to be this amazing person in your community. And I think... And young, don't forget to yes. have your social media followers. You have to have so many, you know, Correct. et cetera, and so yes. forth. It's the social pressures as yes. well. Yeah, yeah, keep going. So they're yeah. just... I think they're just swamped. And they're getting these messages. I mean, we talked to like seventh graders who are stressed about college. And I think I'm going to make a 
assumption. Our age group, you know, adults in our lives told us about college and it was with good intention. I still think it's with good intention. I just think there's a lot of sort of factors that have changed in the environments of our young people. Instead of getting the message maybe, you know, from their teachers at school or like a supportive parental voice, it's like all the time, I better be the best at all things. And like you said, now there is a shining light on young people, this social media, this like camera, so to speak, that's always on them. And we already know psychologically young people have this what's called like an imaginary audience. So we're just very self-conscious. That's totally normal developmentally. It's just what it is. So people already feel, young people already feel like everybody's watching them and everyone's judging them. And now we literally have a thing (laughs) that watches and judges them. So I think when you combine all that together, that's creating high levels of stress for our young people. And so we need to think about, again, one of the great things that I get to do is invite adults back into that conversation. There is a lot of value in peer-to-peer support and you will never hear me knock it. I love peer-to-peer support. I love when young people learn to be great to their other peers. Awesome. But I think lately what I see is a lot of effort being pushed towards that peer-to-peer support or effort being pushed to like, well, social media is the devil, which let's admit there are some definite downsides and negatives too. But what I don't hear is this is my role in the problem and this is how I'm going to make it different for young people. Because we forget that young people are in an environment that was created by adults and we need to step into the picture and change the things we don't like. We can't be like, kids are being mean to each other. I guess we'll teach them to be nicer to each other and like cope with each other without us stepping in and being nice to each other as well. You know, one of the interesting things in one of our meetings with kids, I won't tell you where because I don't want to out the community, but you know, there was a, there's a thing on our survey that says kids in our community are not nice to each other, right? And it was really, really high in this, this community and it felt, you know, everyone I think was like, what? And when we talked to kids, they said, well, you know, honestly, it's really the adults. Like even when they show up in the pickup line, they're like saying nasty things to other kids at our school and things like that. And that was a hard talk to have with the adult <laughs> community, especially as like, hey, I'm Megan from Boise State. This is what your kids are saying. <laughs> um, but it was a really powerful call to action. And I think I saw a lot of the adults in the audience be like, oh, we own this. This is us. And that's what we want. We want to be able to uh, invite Anyone who wants to be part of helping create the best possible environment for kids, right? We want to invite them in, show them some possibility and let them choose, this is how I'm going to do it. So in Boise, for instance, we're really trying to go all in on the social connection thing. How do we increase connection to self, to other peers and to trusted and safe adults for all the kids in our community? Yes, right? absolutely. And that's big. That's huge, right? But I think if you sit with it for a second, you can figure out this is how I can contribute. So for instance, I can host a monthly dinner with my kid and three of their friends and I can just check in on them, right? Right. Or when I go to soccer practice to pick up my daughter, I can say to another child on the team, hey, how was it? You know, Courtney, what's going on? Um, And those are, if we all start doing it, then we're going to see increases. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of it starts with understanding the specific challenges that our youth are facing within our community. The two things that you mentioned, social isolation and high stress are probably, I would bet, consistent 
regardless of what school you're in with, with with our youth today, you know, and I think that is very consistent when, like I said, when I was high school principal, some of the things that we, we saw as well. And, um, and then you figure out, so what can we do? I mean, and listening to kids and understanding kind of maybe getting their ideas and input and, and they, they always have input and ideas (laughs) if you ask. Um, and then you start strategizing and building some things to that end, you know, for what we did is, you know, as a school, one of the one of the several things that we did, but one of the things that we did, we actually blocked out two blocks of time during the week, forty minutes per per block, and we created a thing called community time. And essentially, what it was was every student got a choice of about sixty different interests, topics, kind of almost like electives that, that covered the gamut. We gave the same list to all of the adults in our building. And then based on on that, kind of made a match and put kids in these, these small groups for a quarter at a time. So it wasn't wasn't a long time with adults that also had similar interests. So if for an example, I had a small group that I I led that was focused on backpacking. And we That's were all so just cool. interested in outdoors and, and backpacking. <laughs> yes, and so yes. so that was our interest. And we had mm-hmm. kids from all different grade levels, but they all had that common interest and got mm-hmm. to know each other through kind of a common interest. But that was one of our strategies that we came up with through kind of our focus on believing and getting to that, you know, every student is named and known. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a big push for us. So, so, but, but it starts with understanding what the problem is right. and, and where the, where the issues lie, lie and getting students involved and getting your whole community kind of rallied around it. But there are ways, there are solutions out there that you can make a difference. And I'm, yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff. So cool. I, that, <laughs> we could talk all day. Yeah. So if I was an education leader out there listening right now, mm-hmm. what can I do? What what recommendations do you have for our listeners out there that are maybe leading a school or have some sort of influence on kind of what, what's happening? Or maybe they're just a community member, a board member mm-hmm. of, a, of a school or, or whatever. What What recommendations do you have on what they can do? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's obviously a lot to do and you gave examples of the more proximal, you know, actual actions you can do. But I think if we think about, you know, what could help us all sort of move forward, one of those things is bringing us back to community and shared accountability, shared understanding. And I think that's one of the things that Communities for Youth tries to do, which is we try to help facilitate those important conversations across parents and children, across parents and school leaders, across parents and parents in the community, right? And provide that sort of middle space, if you will, to actually hear and listen to each other and and process that back. And that has to do with the upstream prevention model, which I'll mention again soon. The second thing I would say is that we need to be collecting data. And when I first started saying that around the state, people were like, we have tons of data. What are you talking about? And I say, show me. How are you using this data? What's the data? Where is it being collected? And unfortunately, in the state of Idaho, particularly for young people, we just don't have it. We, we used to, as a state, participate in what's called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. But even that, you know, you get the data back two years later, typically, and it's at the state level. So it's, you know, it might tell you that 30% of kids are struggling in the state, but it's really hard as a building principal or even a district leader to use that information. And so I think one of the great things we offer and that I think is really important in this space is to collect 
the data for your school or for your district so you can make really reasoned decisions, right? So the information we collect, the surveys that we've created have been created with Idaho leaders in the state, both at educational leaders, State Department of Ed. We've had teachers talk to us about items, parents, things like that. And we're always sort of growing that and customizing it to the school because we want the survey experience to be very different from in the past. We want it to be super usable. We turn the data around two weeks after we collect. So that means you get the data in real time. So if you see, for instance, that a certain group is struggling, Those are the kids at your school that day, right? It's not two years later. They haven't graduated already. And so really powerful that the data can help us navigate where we want to go. And then also this key thing that's necessary, which is to check our work, right? Things can feel really good. We can feel very excited about something or we're used to doing a thing. And the data allows us to say, we tried some stuff that we thought would help. Did it help? Did it work? I know on the surface that might feel scary, but once you get into it, like I love working with Idaho educational leaders, you know, Jim Foudy, Adam Johnson up in Blaine and Norm out in Marsing. They're leaders who just are galvanized almost by knowing what's going on. And they, as soon as we identify like a, you know, a red flag area, they're like, oh, I have 15 ideas for this and I'm going to hold a meeting with my teachers about X, Y, and Z. And that's really cool and exciting. And, and that's why I think us coming together is so helpful, right? Because educational leaders don't always have time to collect data, make a valid measurement tool, right? And they don't have all the time to like crunch numbers in their office, but I love to do that. Right, right. And so together we can be, you know, unstoppable or synergistic or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you know, we just finished an entire series on the science of reading in Idaho schools. And one of the predominant themes through that, and we went out and talked to schools that were really doing well in in that space. But one of the key themes was they looked at data consistently on their on their reading scores mm-hmm. and were developing actions around that data. Yeah. Okay. Well, that also applies to the mental health support for our students. Correct. Absolutely. Is yeah. if we don't know where our students are, I, you know, as a school leader, I want to know how many of our students or what percentage of our students feel noticed in my school. Mm-hmm. feel like the, right. there's adults in this building that know their name right. and the adults in this building that that really know who they are mm-hmm. and and care enough to to ask questions about who they are. I want to know that information and and those are once I know that there's some action that can be developed around that. Yeah, we were we almost surveyed maybe too much um <laughs> in our in our in our school um every year, you know, parents, students, faculty, staff not just on mental health, but on a lot of right. things, but we always developed kind of our annual objectives around that data. It was always focused on where are we at th- right now and mm-hmm. what do we need to do to focus for next year? So yeah, I think that's sage advice. Absolutely. Is get the data. And I think I know a lot of our schools are doing that, but that's, that's a really important. Yeah. Piece, and then so. to similar to how we started to work on that upstream prevention part, to be thinking about how do each of us uniquely contribute to the risk and protective factors for young people in the school? How do we look at our risk factors and reduce them 
together? And how do we look at our protective factors and raise them up? Right. And that can, I know what I'm saying. Believe me, I used to be a K-12 teacher. I understand how many things are put on education teachers, leaders, etc. You all are amazing. You're doing amazing work. You're still in there. Good job, you. But, you know, there's so much hoisted upon the shoulders of those folks that I really like to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and help be that additional support, that usable support. I'm not there to like shake my finger or to make a bunch of work for someone because I've been in it. I know what it looks like and there's no way I want to just create busy work for people. So everything is about how do we support the school and being sort of the center of the hub of a community. And then we do the wraparound work, right? We call the community in and help them process the data and help them see their role in how to make it better for young people. Yeah. So if I have a school out there listening right now, a school leader says, I really want to talk to Megan. <laughs> can they can they reach out to you? Oh, yeah. what, what would you suggest? I always tell people I will talk to anyone, anytime about this, anywhere. Probably my daughter, who is 10, <laughs> is sick of hearing me talk about it with people. But yeah, they can email me. I encourage folks to visit our website, which is www.communitiesforyouth, all spelled out. Dot org that gives you some more detail about the process and what we do and how to get a hold of us. And yeah, I think that's probably the the first step. Cool. Yeah. And with your permission, maybe leave your email in a in our Sure. MLSmith at okay. boisestate.edu. Okay. Great. <laughs> well, Megan, as we wrap up, any final comments or thoughts on this topic? I know yeah. we could probably talk for days or at least hours uh, more on this, but anything. Yeah, you know, there's something we talked briefly about yesterday when we were kind of processing this, which is, you know, this mental health crisis, first of all, has been brewing for many, many years. It didn't just start in the pandemic. It certainly got exacerbated, but it didn't start there. It's been a long problem and it's going to take a long, big solution to fix it. We can't speaker our way out of it. We can't program our way out of it. And I think what happens for a lot of people is because it's so big, either people want to sit and talk about how sad it is, uh, which doesn't lead to action, or it's just too big and too sad or too scary and people turn away from it. And what I hope people hear in this or feel in it or connect to, which is there is a ton of hope. And we actually can do this together. I've seen it work in other communities. I know we can do it here in Idaho. And I just think, you know, when I talk to Idahoans, people are really interested in moving their communities to be better for kids. And we can do it. Like we can start today. I could show you what we need to do in Boise and we could start today. And we can only start by having folks engage with us. So... Yeah, absolutely. And we are going to be talking to some schools and school leaders that are seeing some success in this. And we're going to share that information and share those those details. So I'm excited to do that. Well, thanks once again to to you, Megan, for being our guest today and sharing your expertise and experiences. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today's episode. Today is episode, I think it's going to be number three of our podcast series focused on supporting mental health for our youth. So until next time, this is your host, Mike Caldwell, signing off. And thanks again, Megan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us to explore education, leadership, innovation, and impact here on Bloom Together. We encourage you to continue these dialogues in your communities, classrooms, and organizations. 
be sure to visit bloom.org together where you can discover more episodes or click join the conversation if you'd like to be a guest. Until next time, keep learning, keep blooming, and keep making an impact one conversation at a time.